Let's open a word of prayer, please. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open to receive your word and that this body be edified and encouraged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Obviously, as you can tell, Jared's not here. And uh, so good morning, and I'm Robert, and I'll be delivering this morning's message. So welcome to Pastor Appreciation Day, or it's I like to call it Praise God for Jared Day, because either way, I'm sure that when I'm done, you'll have a great appreciation for Brother Jared. And probably on the way home, you'd be going, hey, how was the message? And then the other response probably would be, oh, praise God for Jared. So either way, there's actually no pressure on me whatsoever, because in either way, our pastor is going to be more appreciated by this body, so I have no pressure on me whatsoever. Um, a lot of you guys who know me know that I like to clown around a lot, uh, and so in that light, I ran across I thought something was kind of funny. One Sunday morning, a mother went in to wake her son to tell him it was time to get ready for church, to which he replied, I'm not going. Why not, she asked. I'll give you two reasons, he said. One, they don't like me, and two, I don't like them. His mother replied, I'll give you two good reasons why you should go to church. One, you're 54 years old, and two, you're the pastor. The, uh, this morning, appreciate that. This morning, uh, turn please to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be going through verses 7 through 11. And Jake, if you don't mind, hand me that water bottle, please, I forgot. First oh. Peter 4, 7 through 11. Thank you. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Oh, I'm expecting the worst, so yeah. Just tell me when I need to drop and roll. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I begged Jared last week, just to let y'all know, to let y'all know that I was going to be doing this this morning. And he said, let's let it be a surprise. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not big on surprises. So either he thought you guys would like a surprise or y'all would like to see a good train wreck. So those of y'all who like surprises, surprise. And for those who like to see a train wreck, all aboard. Ready? Peter is talking, uh, when he wrote this epistle to five churches that are now in modern Turkey that were going through a lot of persecution during this time. So that's the context in which Peter was writing this. And this morning there's three main points that I want to try to get across, especially the first one. Live with focus, love with fervency, and labor with faithfulness. 
In this passage, in a nutshell, Peter's telling the believers, inspired by their hope in Christ's return, should band together in loving service to each other to the glory of God. Now, when you hear the the end of all things is at hand, I'm going to take verse 7 and verse 8, and I'm going to divide them into two two sections apiece. So the first part of verse section says, the end of all things is at hand. Just recently, for the last couple of years, actually, everyone was talking about December 21st, 2012, the Mayan calendar. Made movies about it, a lot of documentaries, news stories. The end is near, the end is near. That's not what Peter's talking about. Nor is he talking about some harried, wild-eyed guy on the street corner with the cardboard sign saying the end is near and all this kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about either. He's not talking about the sensation of time. What he's talking about is the imminency of the coming of the Lord. To live in light of that. To live focused on the finish line. Christians should live in anticipation of Christ's return. This is a common New Testament theme. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Paul wrote that. That statement and that verse is even more true now than it was then. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 5, 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour. Philippians 4, 5, Paul says the Lord is at hand. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 35 to 37, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Because the end of all things is at hand. Our confidence of his second coming is predicated on the promise and the fulfilled prophecies of his first coming. In the Old Testament, there are at least 300 prophecies that Christ fulfilled of his coming. At least 300. Many commentators say there's over 400. But Christ fulfilled them all. Again, living in light of the return of Christ. Because the end of all things is at hand. I like Charles Spurgeon. They call him the Prince of Preachers. And it's said that in his, in his study, he had a sign that simply said, perhaps today. So every morning when he would start his study, he would start off with that, with that in mind that today might be the day that the Lord would come again. That's an awesome thing. So our motivation is the end of all things is near. That's our motivation. The end of all things is at hand. First, the second part of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Barclay notes, not Charles Barclay, by the way, he's a basketball fan. Another commentary guy. It's only when we see the affairs of earth in the light of eternity that we see them in their proper proportion. This part of the verse talks about inner steadiness, soundness of mind for purposeful, purposeful praying. It's God-controlled thinking. It assumes that prayer is normative to the life of the believer and is essential as a spiritual discipline along with Bible study. Self-controlled and sober-minded prayer helps us maximize our usefulness in God's kingdom in light of his imminent return once again because the end of all things is near. Every verse that we're going to be going over this morning 
is in light of the imminency of Christ's return because the end of all things is at hand. Self-controlled also means to guard your mind, fix your mind on spiritual priorities, a balanced discipline. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Sober-minded means to help keep a clear head, to take serious things seriously, to be vigilant and alert. MacArthur sums up this verse by saying, clearly, godly, biblical thinking leads to spiritual alertness. How do we do this? What does this look like? What would my prayers be like for my family, my church, and others? By living with focus, gospel-centered focus. By remembering what Christ has done, saving us from our sin. Thinking about what Christ is doing, growing us in sanctification. And by looking forward to what Christ is going to do, come again. By living in light of Christ's return, my mindset and prayers will be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Because again, the end of all things is at hand. So we live with focus. Now Peter tells us to love with fervency. Verse 8, the first part of verse 8 says, Above all things, keep loving one another earnestly. By saying above all, Peter stresses the importance of what is to follow. Above all. The New American Standard Bible says, above all, keep fervent in your love. The NIV uses the word deeply. They all mean a stretching or straining, exerting maximum effort like a runner or a horse in a race. This kind of love, agape love, is sacrificial and intentional. This part of the verse is stated as an imperative, it's a command, it's not a suggestion. And again, it's in light of the end of all things is at hand. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. First Peter, early in this epistle, verse 22 in chapter 1 says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Repeating myself, this love is sacrificial, intentional. It's on purpose. It's with purpose. It never fails. It might cost you a little. It might cost you a lot. It might cost you everything. It's not easy. It's not that sentimental, goosebumpy reaction. It's hard, and sometimes it hurts. It means loving the unlovely and the unlovable. It means loving when love is not returned. Love is a priority in the Christian life in light of the Lord's coming because the end of all things is at hand. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Edward Blum says, Love is capable of being commanded because it is not a priority. It is not primarily an emotion, but a decision of the will that leads to action. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly 
and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Increasing love for one another is a byproduct of growing faith. The stronger and deeper my relationship with the Lord, the more my love for his people increases. Please turn your Bibles with me really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Very famous chapter. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Again, the first part of verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And the second part of verse 8, since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10:12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. R.C. Sproul says, Love keeps no record of wrongs, but forgives in response to God's forgiveness. Since love covers a multitude of sins, in the Greek, since means because. Love, again, that agape love, the same word that was used prior, is volitional. It's a choice. It's on purpose. It's with purpose. Covers means a willingness to forgive. And a multitude, obviously, is a large number or a bundle. A while back, I was taking an evangelism course in... Uh, they were talking about different witnessing techniques. And you've always heard the people say, well, I'm a good person. And I use that Ray Comfort uh, model, basically. I mean, talking about asking people how many sins, how many lives have you told in your life or whatever. And then you get to the point of the gospel and they go, oh, well, I'm a good person. God will let me into heaven. And it got me started thinking about what does that look like? What does that sound like? So, with the help of basically the whole worship team that helped me figure out the mathematical equation a few months ago, we're talking about multitude. So I was thinking about the multitude of sins. What does that look like? And when I was doing that other course on evangelism, I was also doing a study on the sinfulness of sin. So I was like, what? What does that look like? How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they were kicked out of the, of the garden and received the death penalty? One. In our criminal justice system, a person can receive the death penalty for one crime. So taking sin seriously. So I started thinking about my rap sheet. What would my, if I had a rap sheet, what would that look like? Saying like this is one sin that Adam and Eve committed, right? Guilty. One. So I did a very, very conservative estimation I mean, very conservative. 
that say if I only sinned five times a day, okay, for a life, lifespan of 75 years. I know I probably sinned five times before my feet hit the ground this morning out of bed. In fact, I'm almost pretty sure because I was going, Jared, you hate me. Why do I got to do this this morning? It was all, yeah, so I was just like really stressed out. But conservatively, if you only sin five times a day for 75 years of your life, what would that look like? How many guilty verdicts would that be? 136,875. According to this stack right here, this is only two inches. Five sins, just five, just five sins a day for 75 years. Would this be a lot to go into a courtroom with, just this in and of itself? Hey, Your Honor, well, I'm, a, I'm a good person. Really? At five sins a day, 75 years of life, 137,000, it's not two inches. It's actually 45 feet. Those basketball goals are 10 foot high. Imagine, just stack, stacking that up, 45 foot high, and going before even the civil judge. With the 45 foot stack, and, and trying to convince him or her, I'm a good person, Your Honor. Seriously? You get left out of the courtroom. There's no defense attorney, a, a defense attorney who can even take that case. And so when it comes to the sinfulness of sin, it only takes one. If you've broken one law, you've broken them all. And that's five sins a day. I mean, you talk about conservative. My stack's actually probably 150. It's probably, there's probably not even a number for that. That's how bad that is. Since Christ has forgiven my multitude of sins, it's a molecule of comparison for me to hold your sin against me. You know what I'm saying? How ridiculous is that? When he says that, the, that, that love covers a multitude of sins because Christ covered my multitude, my 45 foot stack high, who am I to hold one against you? Is that not ridiculous? That's ridiculous. That's like me wearing skinny pants or something. Or eating fruitcake or something healthy or something. Fruitcake's not healthy, but kind of nasty, actually. But. There's no way I should hold one of your sins when I've got a, a multitude. I've got a, Christ covered my multitude. I can't hold yours against that. You know what I'm saying? In the light of Christ's return, in the imminency of Christ's return, that sin is nothing in comparison. I can easily forgive you for that, knowing what Christ has forgiven me from. Hebert says, this does not mean that love condones sin. Having freely forgiven the sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith, God demands that the forgiven sinner show the same forgiving attitude toward a fellow believer when he falls into sin. When believers lavish love on one another, the sin and offenses of others are overlooked. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, one of my favorite chapters. This is talking, when Jesus is talking about where we get one of our doctrines from for church discipline. Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter, 
came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now you got to understand, you can actually see the growth of Peter by reading Matthew chapter 18 and looking at what he's saying now. Because Peter's saying now, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Then, Peter, you can almost see him come up to, to the Lord because the, the rabbis taught that day that three times was sufficient to forgive. So you can almost see Peter going up to the Lord going <clears throat> in front of other disciples and, and, and Jesus was teaching on forgiveness. Kind of going, uh, so Lord, uh, how many times do I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to uh, seven times? You know what I'm saying? He's like, you get that feeling? And Jesus is like, no. I don't say seven times. I say 70 times seven. I was like, oh. That's not 490. It's a multitude. It's serious. And that's, and that's why I love this verse because it shows when Peter, in First Peter, his growth. He's saying it covers the multitude, guys. I know Jesus told me. You can read about the whole story. It's embarrassing, but it's in Matthew chapter 18. Covers the multitude of sins. And again, it's in light of the end of all things is a hand. So we talked about love with focus, live with focus, love with fervency. And verse 9 and on talks about labor with faithfulness. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality in the Greek means love of strangers. Hospitality is vital for church services and traveling preachers in the early church. Without hospitality, the early church could not have existed. For the first 200 years, there was no such thing as a church building. Believers met in homes. Travel was dangerous and expensive. Traveling preachers and missionaries would stay in the homes of fellow believers. Hospitality was practical, not just emotional. This is rubber meets the road type of Christianity. Again, Peter's motivation in verse, is verse 7. The imminency of Christ's return. This motivation does not cause him to urge men to withdraw from the world or become some kind of heavenly hermits, but his motivation urges his readers into service. Again, this is not some new teaching. Romans 12, 13, again. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 1, uh, Titus 1, 8, I mean, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, hospitality is one of the qualifications for church leadership. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Matthew 25, 35 and 43, Jesus said to those on his right hand, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, while the condemnation of those on his left hand was, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. The word without grumbling emphasizes the heart of hospitality. That's an attitude, it's not just an action. Biblical hospitality knows nothing of the poor Richard's almanac mentality that says fish and guests smell after three days. Because believers still sin, the only thing that will preserve the church's unity is love that forgives and reaches out in hospitality to strangers and fellow believers. That's one thing I love about this church body is that we are very hospitable. Hospitality is love and action. It's not just seeing a need or showing sympathy for a need, but meeting the need. Hospitality, hospitable love transcends physical needs, but also includes emotional and spiritual as well. Again, our congregation is very hospitable. 
We help support missionaries and church plants and other organizations. When someone is sick or has a baby in our congregation, they're fed beyond belief. Everyone making, delivering food. I mean, I'll be reading that stuff on the city. I'm going to bring this pop. I'm, gonna, I'm sitting there going, man, I wish I was having a baby. I mean, some of that stuff drooling over my laptop. I'm like, are you seriously? Not like bologna and cheese sandwiches. It's like full-on major. Okay, I just went on a rant. I'm sorry, but you guys are very impressive, especially when it comes to that. Let's go to verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Christian love and service go hand in hand. Every Christian has a spiritual gift or ability. MacArthur says, when believers use their gifts in serving one another, they minister in a fashion that mutually benefits the church. Conversely, non-use of gifts or wrongly depreciating some gifts adversely affects Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, as each part of the human body has a particular function, so does each member of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are graciously given by God for us to serve and strengthen others, not ourselves. The word steward refers to a slave or a manager who's in charge of his master's possession. The bottom line is that each person in the church body has received gifts to equip him for the building up of the body of Christ and should be done so in light of the coming of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. In verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The two broad categories of spiritual gifts are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking ministers through categories of preaching and teaching, exhortation, knowledge, and discernment. Serving gifts ministers through areas such as administration, prayer, mercy, helps, and giving. Oracles of God in this verse means speaking God's word as revealed in Scripture, not someone's opinion. Serving, not in or by my power, but by the strength that God supplies. The purpose, the purpose of it all is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Again, living, living in light, of verse, first part of verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. J.C. Ryle wrote, A holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of life that is now, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. Wow. Schreiner said, Since the end is near, believers should live according to God's will. What this means in practice is that believers should be alert and sober for prayer, that they should live in sacrificial love that includes hospitality, and that they should use their gifts, whether speaking or serving, to help others. The aim and motivation in all they do is to see God glorified through Jesus Christ. In conclusion, because of Christ, we can labor with faithfulness by showing hospitality and serving one another with our spiritual gifts. His life was a definition of hospitality. As to service in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Because of Christ, we can love with fervency because he first loved us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, for God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of Christ, we can live with focus because the end of all things is at hand. In John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. But where I am, that where I am, you may be also. My final statement is believer, and live in light of the returning of Christ. Non-believer, repent. Repent and come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this wonderful church family. Help us to live in light of your imminent return, to love one another fervently, to show hospitality to one another, and to use the gifts that you've given us to serve one another for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.